0: For apartments today, we try and find um, assets that are really well located, but have some dated interiors, dated exteriors, so high demand, but lower than market. Hey there,
1: I am Dr. Jason Ballara, and this is the Know Your Why podcast, where we explore the why behind success. Every week, I meet with real estate investors, veterinary entrepreneurs, mindset coaches, authors and fitness professionals to uncover their why and how it drives them on the winding road to success. What is your why? Hi everyone, I'm Jason Bellara, and this is the Know Your Why podcast. Today I'm here with Mark Curry. Uh, Mark has been an avid real estate investor for 17 years and throughout his career he's been involved in sourcing, underwriting, acquiring, raising capital, Rehabilitating, Managing, and Selling Both Residential and Commercial Investments. Um, Mark, sounds like you've done it all, and uh, I'm very excited to to dive into your story. But first, I just wanna say thank you for coming on the show, taking the time out today to to come um, talk to us. So thank you very much for being here.
0: Man, my pleasure, Jason. Thanks for having me. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Um, Why don't we start with just let let us know, kind of tell us your story, your background, What got you into real estate? Kind of, kind of all that, and then we'll we'll just go from there.
0: Sure. Yeah, I'll try and keep it brief. You know, um, so Jason, for me, it kind of started uh, out of college. I was working in finance for corporate America for a number of years, and quickly realized that that probably wasn't for me. I um, was very focused on how, how do I create long term passive income through multiple streams of income and. Really become financially free. That was always the goal. Uh, but I worked at Car America for about eight years, and throughout that time, I started investing in real estate on the side. You know, very active investing, um, buying fixer uppers, partnering with family members, my brothers, my folks, and we had built a, a small portfolio over the years through the recession. This is uh, two thousand five to two thousand ten, and by two thousand ten, I was just hooked and. Left the W2 world and we started our company, SMK Capital Management. That's uh, my father and I's initials. And the goal at the time was just to keep expanding, to raise capital from others uh, that trusted us and liked us, um, to keep uh, uh, buying. We were buying a lot of distressed properties from the bank at the time, REOs, short sales, foreclosures, some boarded up properties that needed a ton of love and attention. Um, and we we're doing that in a few markets. And so that's how we got our start. Um, you know, Today, we really have evolved to a, more of a private equity real estate investment company. What we do is we partner with uh, other operating partners or sponsors in different asset classes like mobile homes and self-storage and ATMs and apartments. And we analyze a ton of deals, um, roughly about 97% of the deals we see, Jason, we don't invest in. Working with the best teams out there, and uh, being very selective with investments for for our investor group. So I'll pause and see what questions that brings.
1: Yeah, thank you for for that. I mean, I think there's a lot of interesting things to sort of dive in here. One, um, you know, sort of starting that journey around the recession is always intriguing to me to hear people that were kind of involved at that time and and hear what your experience was, you know, leading up to, and I, I was alive then I I owned my own home kind of in and around that time. And so I experienced it on a, on a small level, wasn't really uh, investing heavily at that point, but I know the, just when I've talked to other guests about that, went through it kind of, I think the stories that people encounter in a recessionary environment and how you got through that and all of that is is helpful for people to hear and also um speaks speaks volumes i think to track record so maybe just talk about that time a little bit
0: yeah happy to jason um you know I, i'll say this we we've always been focused on i would say how do we create value manually what can we mm-hmm. do to grow the assets either income or, or valuation or both. And so from the early days, again, we were buying, you know, homes, a lot of times the purchase price was less than the renovation costs, Jason. So putting a ton of money back into these rehabbing houses. And that's how through the recession, you know, you're buying deals at, some of the deals we bought back then Jason were 60% off what they had sold for just two years prior. And so you're seeing these huge discounts. Um, and then, buying them in a distressed fashion and and being able to add value has been a huge part of our focus. It remains our focus today. Although today we also like to have income. So we're looking for properties that are stabilized, meaning there's, you know, 90, 95% occupancy when we buy them, but there's something wrong with them that we can fix a human error, some kind of um, manual process we can go through to improve the property significantly while earning cash flow. So we, we kind of gotten spoiled and we like both. But that's a bit of of this transition. I'll, I'll share some things, you know, through the recession. Um maybe we got a bit lucky. Like some of the loans that you hear these horror stories of folks who had these adjustable rate loans and they went from, you know, x to y and their mortgage rate went up by hundreds of thousands of dollars a month and uh it caused them to, to of course not be able to sustain the properties. Um I, I somehow got lucky. The first property I bought I had a 5-1 arm. So after five years, the interest rate adjusted, but it adjusted down. So the timing of when I bought it and when it adjusted uh, was, was just out of my understanding at the time. I, I uh, uh, didn't know what I was doing, but I got lucky. Yeah. And so yeah. that's one story. I think a few other things that are helpful is just we never sold anything from 2008 to, gosh, probably not till 2013, 2014 did we start selling. And even you look back now, you're like, wow, I wish we had waited longer, you know. But right. the key to to persevering through the downturn was just not selling at the wrong time. And that's the story with real estate. If you can keep holding, if you can keep cash flowing, and, and not everything cash flow through the recession, we saw rents go down in certain markets by you know 20%. Um, but we we write a check, right? You you make up the difference to keep the property going. Um, and then of course you see the the merit of that. That risk and then the reward comes later, and so uh, we didn't start selling until several years after the recession had essentially started to turn in the other direction.
1: Yeah, some some really great points there. I mean, one is just that that piece about this. you don't you don't actually lose any money unless you go ahead and sell it when the market is down, right? So if you're looking at strictly market conditions. Yes, on paper, your value goes down. I mean, it's, it's similar if you're looking at the stock market, right? The stock market goes down. If you don't sell it right then, you didn't lose any money. These are, you know, kind of unrealized gains and losses until you exit whatever the asset is. It, and, and so I think that's an important thing for people to understand that And this points to the type of, of debt that gets used or, or you know, you, you uh, factor into whatever your strategy is, is, is making sure that you're not in a position to be forced to sell. And so, if it's you know you're in a in a market like we were in in you know 2009 2010, or in a market that we're in I guess now, like not if you don't have to sell, probably not the end of the world. Like you said, sometimes cash flow goes away. There's things to adjust to, but at the end of the day, most of the money is made at at the you know sort of exit on on real estate. The other thing you mentioned is is you know sort of the value add component to what you're doing where there's two types of appreciation or there's the market appreciation and then there's that manual appreciation that you referred to so that i think is something that that maybe gets missed in the in the um when the market is you know turns for the worse is is sometimes you've done enough from a value add play that it doesn't maybe your values haven't gone up as much as it would have but it doesn't hurt you as bad because you've you've sort of manually increased those those values so what kind of things do you do, Mark, to, to do that? And I, it's probably different per asset class, but you know, what kind of things are you looking at from a value-add strategy?
0: Yeah, I'll, maybe I'll break it down, just give you a quick overview of each asset class, Jason, because each one's a bit unique. I mean, we'll start with apartments because most people can know and understand them pretty easily. But um, for apartments today, we try and find um, assets that are really well-located but have some dated interiors dated exteriors so high demand but lower than market rents and through renovation and through organic growth of the market we can grow net operating income and so renovating units is a big one for apartments Um, there's also a lot of other what we call other income items like different ways to add revenue streams to a property other than just renovating units and that can be through different amenities that you add to the asset billing back utilities, cable, internet. Uh, There's different ways to do things there that help the bottom line. Um, But a lot of it does come back to what are you buying in the first place, right? So if you have a brand new property, it's a little harder to grow the value because there's not much more you can do. It's just brand new, right? It was just built a few years ago. Rents are already at market. Those deals, um, Jason, we'll typically only look at if there is some kind of uh, unique tax structure, like tax-exempt apartments yep. where we're not paying property taxes. Okay, well, that's that's interesting. Let's learn more about that, right? So we've been doing a lot of property tax exemptions for the last couple of years. Um, then if we shift to, you know, self-storage is a good one to talk about. Uh, a lot of times, what some of our operating partners do, Jason, they focus on buying from mom and pop owners, you know, husband and wife, they've owned this asset for 20 years, they're tired. They're getting a little bit um, lax with their oversight, their management. They haven't raised rents in 10 years. Um, this is something that we just recently invested in. So I'm actually speaking verbatim to this deal. And, you know, one of the, in this case, one of the, the, the husband had passed away. Uh, they're in their 80s. The wife doesn't want to deal with it anymore. She's not even, you know, barely collecting rent, right? There's a, a box that the property people can slip an envelope into. And there's, virtually like no online presence, right? So if you go look for storage in that local market, um, you don't need to really find their their facility. So occupancy was at this deal, 70%. And the the going in rents, again, 10 years hadn't raised rents. So that like a 10 by 10 storage unit at this property was around 80 bucks a month where the market was charging over 120. And so you just have this, this property that, through, I would say, human error and, and just lack of effort has provided an opportunity right, for us to come in and add value and raise rents, increase occupancy, start online marketing uh, almost immediately. So those are the kinds of deals we like to see where there's a story behind them, Jason, of how we can take it from A to B and feel really, really confident that we can execute on that story and, and, and the business plan. And then maybe lastly, we'll just talk about mobile home parks, which has been a big part of our investment portfolio for over 10 years. Um you do have a, a lot more potential value add in mobile home parks than some apartments, for example. So a lot of the parks we buy are usually you know, 70, 80% occupied. So they have vacant lots, Jason. You can bring in new homes to these communities and uh sell them or rent them. And that can increase the bottom line very significantly and in a rather short period of time, you know, one, two, three years. And so we look for those kinds of communities um, that uh, are undersupplied from affordable housing standpoint. And then we try and increase the supply of affordable housing. And we've just find that the, the fruits of that labor are well worth it. So those are a few of the value add measures that we'd like to see.
1: Thank you for breaking that down. I think those are important things for people to understand, you know, sort of it it may differ per asset class, but also within asset classes, it's not just one thing. It's not just renovations. It's not just, you know, finding a mom and pop. Like you can combine strategies, you mentioned adding more, you know, other incomes streams. So, but one thing you said, Mark, that that I want to highlight, because I think people uh, sometimes miss, you know, from the. From out, you know, uh, non-full-time real estate investors, you said we we can, you know, add this these value propositions. You were talking about mobile home parks, but you can have in a in a short time, one, two, three years, and for a lot of people, that's not a short time. Like that's not how they uh, look at time horizons, and I think that's been one of the things that um, has struck me when talking to potential investors. It's like look, we've, we're doing this over, you know, we have a planned hold time of five, seven years. And, and, you know, so people list illiquidity as one of the downsides to real estate. And I, and I really think it's, it's kind of one of the upsides to real estate in the sense that you don't make rash emotional decisions. And, and as we mentioned, like sell when things are down, because you're worried, like you just stick to the business plan and and go forward. But um, I, I just like you sort of combined a short term horizon with three years. And and I think that's just an important thing for people to understand in, in real estate is it's a uh get rich slow sort of prospect, but but definitely um achievable over time.
0: Yeah, I'll add some commentary there, Jason, because I agree, you know, when you initially start out in this in this industry, in this investment space, if you're doing predominantly single family homes or small multifamily, which is how we got started years ago one to three years is is a long time. And so right, uh, right. I, I get it, right? You're flipping a house. You want to be in and out in six months yeah. if you can. And so, but uh, what we're talking about is is definitely a more of an institutional scale. Like a lot of the apartments we invest in are three, four, 500 units, right? And um, same with mobile home parks. They're larger in size, larger in scale, uh, and the same with self-storage. And so You know, if you're gonna come in and, and renovate a property, you have a lot more to do, let's just be honest. And so it takes longer. And then in the case of a large apartment community, you know, we're not kicking tenants out. We renovate when leases come up for renewal. And if tenants don't uh stay, then that unit becomes available for renovation. So you have to run through the rent roll, you know, once or twice, sometimes three times, before you get to renovate the majority of the property. Um, and then lastly, you know, what's also I'll stress for us is you know while we're doing the business plan of creating and growing the value, we're also looking to earn income, right? So we get quarterly distributions of the net cash flow, and we pass that through to our investors. And so you're earning passive income in the same time as growing the asset value. Yeah,
1: yeah. And You mentioned something that that uh, you sort of touched on before that I think is an important point, especially right now, where maybe maybe touch on how you balance occupancy with that value add strategy, because I think two years ago, even people were like, oh, we just go in there, we get everybody out who's under rent, and we renovate those units. And then we're able to charge, you know, X hundreds of dollars more per unit. And then when the market changed so dramatically, then then people face problems with occupancy. And, you know, un- so your, your cash flows down, you're still trying to renovate. I mean, the, these are are problems that um, a lot of people have faced, uh, ourselves included, in some examples. So, how do you sort of address things like that? And 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 you touched on a little bit, but maybe expand on how you how you navigate sure. that timing piece.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'll share a couple thoughts here, Jason. You know, a lot of our operating partners today are using you know AI-driven revenue management software at the property level, and so. For those that aren't familiar with that, it's a pretty sophisticated software that changes the rental rate or the pricing of your product every day based on local area comparables, based on the current supply and availability at your community, um, and based on something you know other factors. One of them is staleness, like hey, how long has this unit actually been vacant? And these kinds of factors, and so it's pretty robust and provides a lot more accuracy into you know pricing. Now, with that, each property is going to be a little different in relation to your question of when to renovate and how quickly and and at how what extent, right? Um, so in general, what you're looking for is you want to maintain um occupancy. Usually for us, we want to be over 90, 92 percent um, on apartments specifically, where at that point you feel like, okay we can start pushing a little bit more on the rents. So let's see where the, the ceiling is. Um, and then when units come up for renewal, you know, perhaps the rental rate on that unit, the tenant's been there for a couple of years and we've just been raising it slowly. I'm going to make some numbers up here. Let's say it's a two bed, one bath and it's 1300 But if we renovate it, we know we can get 1600 And so what do we want to do? Do we want to ask that tenant to stay and charge them 1325 or would you rather that unit come vacant? And you'll make that decision based on you know, math and then, of course, what the tenant's desires are. A lot of times you can move them down the hall to another property in the same community that has been renovated if they're looking for that. Or if they're um, just digging their heels in, you know, occasionally you might want to push the rents pretty high on that renewal notice so that they would choose to vacate. Now, we don't do that very often, but there's options there when the units come up for renewal on what to do to meet the business plan, to meet the stable occupancy and to keep things going. Now, if you're seeing re- your occupancy, like, gosh, we've got 15 renovations going on right now. This unit just came up for renewal. We want to keep them and we don't want to renovate right now. So then you will adjust your uh, your process for that renewal with that resident accordingly. And so it's really a case-by-case scenario, depending on you know all the conditions noted there. Yeah, the
1: so... Those decisions you're making that you've got AI software that you're using to with the pricing and things like that. But I'm assuming then kind of on the back end, you're making those higher level decisions as to where do we, how far do we want to push these renovations to maintain occupancy? Where does the, I guess, and maybe this is hard to answer and it's you know property dependent, but, but where does that sort of use of the software and in, in you know sort of the asset management from, a, from an actual person kind of take over in, in that process?
0: Yeah, good question. So um, the software is a suggestion of what to do with pricing. There's a team behind all of that, looking at that information daily, Jason, with weekly calls, going through the analysis of what's best for the property, and then making that decision. And so that's really how you see it. It's more of a tool, not a, a complete deciding factor. There are uh very well experienced and versed folks behind the scenes that are driving the ship um but that that is a helpful tool that um we are seeing and using across a lot of our our properties with our operating partners
1: yeah so yeah you're it's all i mean it's all intertwined you've you've got the softwares you've got your on site property management team and then yourselves or your operating partners as, as the asset managers that are kind of essentially just, you know, a number, number of layers of, um, decision-making, but, but maybe even more importantly, just a bit of a checks and balances like, okay, we're, you know, if we just did what the software says, is that going to get us to where, to where our actual business plan wants us to be versus, you know, what, what other decisions, what other levers can we pull to get this, uh, you know, property where we want it to be, and if you're, it, again, it depends very much on that business plan. As you mentioned, you like to be getting cash flow along the way, so you're not going to drop occupancy so that you can renovate. You know, twenty percent of the units at a time It's just that's going to going to make that difficult. So, I, I think importantly, understanding what the overall goals of your investors and your business plan, how that all ties in together, makes makes
0: a big difference yeah it's all part of the decision making process jason i mean another thing to note uh, a lot of our operating partners have you know what we call like insider information right where they might own several other assets within the same submarket. yeah and that gives them a lot more insight as well as to the trends the leasing velocity the rental rates the demand you know parking no parking garage parking how much do we charge for it oh there's a wait list down the street for garage parking. You know, the software wouldn't know that. Right. And right. so there's a lot of information that's also added to this decision making. Um, a lot of times when we're working with an operator that has scale in a certain submarket.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It makes total sense. Um, you mentioned, you know, sort of through the journey in, in the beginning, you were doing a lot of that active side of things operating and now you're more, um, you know, sort of operating a, a private equity firm, and and investing with other operators. How did, I guess maybe, what made you make that switch? And then, you know, kind of how did how did that transition work for you?
0: Yeah, great question. So that's a big part of our, our evolution, I think, organically, Jason. Right. So when we first started our firm, it was really just to build on what we had been doing as a family, um, as an operating partner. And so from two thousand ten to two thousand seventeen you know we were the operating partner for 99% of our deals um and that means we cha- we decided everything the paint color the flooring we made all the decisions we managed the manager the asset manager you name it all in house and our investors trusted us right to to make the right decisions and to execute on the business plan that's why they invest with us um at the same time, from two thousand and eleven to two thousand and sixteen, you know, I had left corporate America formally in two thousand ten, and I had a four hundred one k kind of sitting idle. It's like, gosh, well, what do I do with these funds? Right, the stock market is super scary at this t- at the time. And now you look back, you say, gosh, I should have put it all in the stock market. But um, I uh, I went out on this uh, you know two year networking binge, I call it Jason, where I just was a sponge for information and on uh different asset classes different real estate strategies i started um every week or two i was at another live meeting listening to some expert speak about a certain subject and i learned a lot through that time period Um, notebooks and notebooks <laughs> filled with information jason right and so that was a big part of my evolution but the goal at the time was to learn more about you know, personally, like, what should I be investing in? Cause you find out quickly, you can't invest your retirement dollars in your own deals. It's a prohibited transaction. So I opened up a self-directed IRA and started investing passively as a limited partner into other sponsors and operating partners deals at the time. You know, again, 2010, 11, there wasn't a lot you could point at and say, gosh, this is actually done pretty well. We did find that uh mobile home parks, self-storage, some apartments had actually fared quite well through the recession all other things considered and so started investing personally into those again as a limited partner Um, myself some of my family members we did that for five years uh, while doing our own deals as an operating partner and over that five years you know we made over 20 investments um, into 10 different real estate asset classes within commercial real estate you know from Gosh, we invested in some oil fields in Texas. We invested in short-term debt funds. We invested in long-term mobile home parks. We tried a lot of things. Um, But at the end of that period, we could kind of look at the data, the returns, the projections, the risk, and analyze and compare different strategies, different asset classes compared to what we were doing, where the market was likely to go. Again, not trying to time the market. Nobody can do that. But a lot of the deep discounted deals that we had been buying you know direct from the bank uh, we're dried up right number of foreclosures we've gone down etc and so we decided to ask our investors you know hey here's something else that we've been doing for the last five years are you guys interested in it too and they, mo- most of them said yeah we want to diversify we'd love to get exposure to self-storage and these other asset classes as long as it's with operating partners that you trust and so um we had built that trust. We had built the relationships. And uh, so we started syndicating and, and raising capital and really focusing more on private equity again about uh, seven years ago and got out of the formal operating partner space. Um, and I wouldn't look back. If you look back today, I wouldn't change a thing. I think it was a really good decision for us and for our investors. And today we're very well diversified. And um, I think a lot of that is because of just the hunger and the thirst for knowledge and trying to understand, you know, what else can we do? How else can we become better at this and continuing to do that day in, day out.
1: Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. I, I think, um, again, just going back to that sort of time horizon that we touched on before, but you know, you, you took five years of, of investing as a, a limited partner, passive investor in other people's deals to you did two years of, uh, networking and, and educating and all of that. So, I mean, I, th- I think it's just the, the the willingness to put all that time in to to get it, you know, as right as you can. I mean, it, there's there are investments at the end of the day, and so it's like we can't always know exactly what's going to happen, but but there are a lot of things we can know and be prepared for, and so that just comes down to, to putting in the time and the energy to to find those out. So, I love that, you know, sort of trajectory. I, I, uh, have, (laughs) I think similar aspirations myself. I love right now. I love the operational side of it. I love being an active investor and I don't think I will ever get away from it completely, but I do, uh, look forward to getting to the point where that's sort of an optional thing for me. And, and, and maybe I will just want to invest with other people at some point. I I don't know, but I, I think it's not an uncommon pathway. There's a lot of, uh, it's, it's funny. You see, um, a lot of people, when they think about getting started in, in real estate, they think they have to be an active investor and they're like, ah, I'll do it myself. I'll make more money that way, blah, 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 all of this. And then th- you do it and you're like, this is hard. <laughs> this, this is just really hard. A lot of work, a lot of time. And yeah. and so you see the people that have been in it as an active investor for a while, then go back, you know, kind of the other way. And it's, a, it's just an interesting, um, path to follow and i've i've seen that with a number of of guests that have been in it for a long time right like yeah you you kind of get to that point where you're like maybe it would be better to just manage the money than the (laughs) than everything else (laughs) so it's a it's really cool to see that that how that's worked for you and your family
0: you know it it does help to have the hands-on experience jason absolutely like when i walk properties today i was at the property two days ago um with our operating partners, and our asset management team, like you see things because you have experience and you can add value on site, on the ground and help out in that aspect too. And then you can also understand all the nuances with the day-to-day operations a lot better because you've managed a portfolio of properties that, you know, have rents due on the first and late notices out on the seventh and, you know, this whole systematic process to ensuring that the property is performing. And so you can also helps identify if there's issues and problems uh, at our operating partners, staff and and processes as well. So the experience is great both ways. Uh, I don't think one's better than the other. It's just find out what works best for you and try going down that road.
1: Yeah, no, I 100% agree. That experience piece, even like my background before I was syndicating, was in just construction, like residential construction. I, I worked since I was a teenager, I worked in construction. Well, that knowledge has been, Extremely valuable when it comes to right. just like you're saying managing construction projects on instead of a, one house, we're just it's a whole bunch of little houses stacked on top of each other. And it's just it's kind of like a um, all of that knowledge and experience just kind of rolls on top of each other and lets you, you know, be able to to go to that next level and feel comfortable with with managing it at whether it's as an active investor or fund manager, you know, kind of wherever you are in in the journey at all it all i guess compounds on top of itself that's right uh, well mark I, this is great i don't want to keep you all day but I, I want to ask you the questions that i get to ask every guest um first one being related to the name of the show um know your why so what's your why you you've been you've been doing this for a long time uh it, it's you know and and we just talked a lot about kind of your evolution so what keeps you going towards bigger and bigger success? Sounds like you know you've done a lot and and already um, quite experienced. What keeps you? What drives you at this point?
0: I think a few things, Jason. You know, first I, I do love looking at deals. Um, I, I will always love looking at investment opportunities, and so having that inner thirst for you know looking at a new opportunity um, is very helpful. I mean, we look at ten to twenty deals a month. We invest in five to seven a year and so um that's a big part of it to keep going because you never know what's around the corner so there's that excitement level um and you never know what could what could come next uh now with that as far as you know my why i think it started back in when i was in corporate america just wanting to achieve financial freedom and not having having a little bit more of a formal education, you know, going to school for finance, but they don't teach you how to balance a checkbook or teach you how to, you know, borrow for a car. You know, I could tell you how to hedge 100 million yen, but I've never done that since I learned it in school. So, yeah, yeah, I learned a lot of things that were uh, helpful in the process of how to learn something, but not applicable, right? Calculus, Mm -hmm. I just haven't touched calculus in a long time. And so there's all the subjects like, you know, I call it personal financial planning, and um i I used to teach a course at a local community college about real estate investing and a lot of the um folks that show up are very good at what they do and successful and hungry but also trying to achieve personal financial freedom so that's been a big why for me throughout my whole career whether it was in corporate america or at our our firm and in between um is really just you know trying to get out of the rat race determining what's the way to do this, uh, reading a ton of books, obviously most folks have read rich dad, poor dad, but when I was in my early twenties, I read that. And that was a big wake up call to being a W two versus a business owner. And so trying to spread some of that wisdom and knowledge I've learned over the years to other folks to help them get ahead is, is a big, big part of my why.
1: Yeah, I love that. Um, tell us something about yourself that isn't common knowledge. Special skill, a hobby, just something to let people know you better. Anything you're comfortable sharing.
0: Sure, yeah. Um, Well, I'm married. I've got two kids, five and seven years old. We live in Bend, Oregon, and uh, we moved here about eight years ago. Kind of settled down, have a family, Jason, right? But uh, we ski a lot. So I've been skiing and snowboarding. I do both since, geez, I started skiing when I was five and snowboarding when I was nine. So in the 1980s and uh, still do both regularly. Um, it's a big part of, you know, for me, it's like, I love balance in life. I work hard, but I also like to play hard. And so we, uh, we live that way regularly. And, uh, a big part of it is being outside and enjoying the outdoors and sliding down the hill.
1: All right. Follow-up question to that. Which do you prefer between skiing (laughs) and snowboarding?
0: Depends on the snow, Jason. So really? uh, Okay. Yeah. If it's powder, I'm snowboarding. If there's, you know, a little firmer, Snow, uh, ice, groomers—you name it. I'm usually taking two edges out on the ski and the skis instead of the snowboard. See
1: that—that's a—that's an answer from someone who has experience with it. Because I—I <laughs> I mean, I haven't done anything like that in a long time. But I always liked snowboarding better than skiing. Just—I don't know—I felt more stable on it for some unknown reason, but, uh, but yeah, if you're good at both, then you can actually answer that question other than which one do I feel like I'm going to fall less is, is probably my answer. Yeah. That's good. <laughs> um, when people hear this and they want to reach out to you, Mark, what's the best place to reach?
0: Yeah, I'd say if you want to learn more passive investing, what we do, some of our investments, um, two, two things. One, you can go to our website, which I would encourage folks to do. It's smkcap.com. And sign up, you know, join our investor group, and you'll start learning a lot about us, who we are, what we do. You'll get access to our investment opportunities and such. And then also for folks who have specifics, you know, you can email me at info at smkcap.com. I uh, answer all the emails and happy to chat with folks.
1: Great. And we'll put all that in the show notes, too, so people can find you easily who are listening to this. Um, My final question for you, Mark, is what piece of advice would you give to someone who is um, listening to this, they're inspired, and, and they want to get started in real estate, what, what would you tell them as maybe some first steps to take?
0: First few steps for me, number one, networking. Who are you going to work with? Because this is not an individual industry. You work with folks. We work with folks every day, all day. Mm-hmm. And so get aligned with the right people. That's always been number one for us. Um, and number two is, is you know, have that thirst, that inner inner drive to want to just learn, 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 learn. And if you don't have that, that's okay, but it's going to be harder for you to grow and excel uh, because there's so much in this business that you have to know and understand in order to do well. It's not easy and it takes time. But again, if you're aligned with the right people and you've got the right mindset, you can definitely excel. And I think that the last thing is you got to start somewhere, right? And so a lot of people, they're hesitant. They sometimes overanalyze and they might just continue to wait and wait and wait for a perfect opportunity well a perfect opportunity is probably not going to come but an opportunity is probably right around the corny corner and so if you can see that take advantage of it and at least start somewhere that's the key then you can just keep going but you got to start so those are my my thoughts there on that
1: yeah Uh, all all great advice Um, thank you for sharing that and uh, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I appreciate your time very much. Uh, I think this is going to be a very valuable episode for people listening. Um, so appreciate, appreciate your sharing everything you did today. Yeah.
0: Thanks for having me, Jason. It was fun. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Folks listening. I know you're going to get a ton of value out of this episode. Um, please like rate and review so we can get more great guests like Mark. And thank you all for listening. Hey there. I am Dr. Jason Ballara, and this is the Know Your Why podcast where we explore the why behind success. Every week, I meet with real estate investors, veterinary entrepreneurs, mindset coaches, authors, and fitness professionals to uncover their why and how it drives them on the winding road to success. What is your why?